What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only John Anderson. John, great to have you on the podcast. So tell me, how'd you cope with lockdown during COVID? I got on with a lot of music, that's for sure. The day we were told to stay indoors, away from the chaos, uh, I was I was doing a barbecue and I slipped on the top steps near where the barbecue is and I broke my foot in two places. For the first six months of COVID, I was on crutches. But it made me want to go in the studio and create, and that's what I did. And what did you create, and you did it alone? Uh, yeah, I, I, I create a lot of stuff. You know, um, I, I called it the Opus Opus, and then I did, shortened it up to Opus Opus. And it's a combination of... Uh, uh, the miracle of playing all the white notes on the keyboard, because I can't play them both at the same time, black and white, like a normal person. So I just play the white notes, and I was playing this music, and I record little sections, and then I record another one, and then I record another one. And during the course of about two weeks, I recorded about 20 sort of musical events, if you like. And, uh, and then I actually went on tour... Um, I think it was with uh, the uh, Academy of Rock, these young teenagers. And uh, we had a great tour, and, uh, and uh, we caught COVID on the way home, which was crazy. But that's the way things happen, the, expect the unexpected. But the remarkable thing about working with teenagers, you feel young and vibrant until somebody does a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> or when you look in the mirror and say wait a minute you got <laughs> a couple of guy. things going on here tell me about only being able to play the white keys and not the black keys at the same time it's just one of those things i you know my my i never learned to play the piano so i i sort of made it up and i just use the white notes all the time 
So um, it works for me, you know, and, 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 and I tell a story that um, when I was doing my solo show, at, halfway through it, I'd start playing the keyboards and singing along with the keyboards. And uh, I, I could never sing with the piano. I played the piano, but could never sing with it until I actually broke my back. I know it's a strange idea, but it actually broke my back putting up uh, Christmas uh, tinselly things on the front door of our house. And uh, I fell over on the wall and broke my back. And uh, from that moment on, I could actually sing at the piano. Whoa, <laughs> okay. Now we got a lot of stuff going on. So you were putting up tinsel, yeah, and you fell sparkly, and sparkly tinsel and the lights on the front door because it was Christmas. How far did you fall? Uh, probably about four foot back backwards onto the wall, which had a sharp sort of edge to it. And uh, and um, God bless my wife; she phoned up the um, the ambulance to come and get me. And the ambulance came and got me, and I kept saying, "I need some morphine." <laughs> My back is hurting me. And the guy would say, well, we'll give you some when we get to the hospital. And I said, yeah, but I need it now because it really hurts. And the guy said, are you John Anderson? I said, yeah, just give me morphine. <laughs> he said, can I have your autograph then? We're in the bloody back of the... the <laughs> when I think about it, we're in the back of the ambulance and he's asking me for an autograph. <laughs> and... How do they treat a broken back, and how long did it take to recover? A long time. Uh, you basically put on a big, tight thing around your chest and sit up a lot, and that's when I started creating some music as well, I remember. Okay. You live in California. I don't want your address, but generally speaking, we're in California. Are you in California? Yes, I'm in LA. Oh, great. I'm, I'm Central California. And how'd you end up there? Well, it's a nice story, actually, because I came to work and live in L.A. some 30 years ago uh, doing an album called, with Yes, called The Big Generator, which um, was one of those experiences that uh, I, I'll never forget. <laughs> and uh, it just happened that... Um, I was working on a, an album at the time called Toltec, which not many people know, uh, which is my my invitation to make music about the Native American uh, character energy that they are, wonderful people, the indigenous people of this part of America. And um, so I was making s some music and uh, I'd, I'd had a lot of meditation up until that point in time. And I kept seeing this beautiful girl jump up and wave at me halfway through the meditation. And uh, so a friend of mine who worked at BMI said, I have a friend that would like to meet you. She actually writes uh, and organizes the musicians with the company. Um, uh, what's the company called? So the problem, Bob. <laughs> It'll come to you. It's a mental Rolodex. You got to go through all the pages. No, I know. Um, Imagine movies, you know, imagine the company. Right. She worked, she worked for them. And uh, she came to visit me for lunch. And uh, I said I would prepare lunch. And thinking about it, I actually prepared uh, local pizza 
which was a girl. <laughs> and and uh, she came in, and it was the girl that I'd been seeing in my meditation. And I remember just trying to play some music for her, but not quite coordinating the idea that I'd just met somebody I'm going to fall in love with and get married to. And I didn't tell her that. But uh, it just happened that uh, that's life. So my wife, Jane, and myself got married, and uh, we've been together 30 years, and we still love each other like crazy. And okay, a couple of things. No, no, no. Pardon. Sorry? Okay, I just want to stop you there. You had oh. a meditation. Yeah. You saw her. Yeah. She walked in the front door. Right. A little bit slower. How did the romance begin? Well, I looked at her and shook her hand saying, I love you. We're going to get married. You're incredibly beautiful. I said that in my head. I didn't say it verbally. Oh, okay. Because I shook her hand, you know, and I was mesmerized. I was totally mesmerized. And thankfully, uh, she actually liked me. And uh, then her her uh, sister lives in Central California, and we went up to visit the town of San Luis Obispo. And uh, all of a sudden, I just fell in love with the idea of living in this part of the world. And that was it. And here we are still 30 years later. Okay. But going back, she comes to your house to hear music. You know you're going to marry her. How do you actually convey to her? How does it become a romance? Um, well, she said to me, the uh, last thing she said to me was, um, send, send me a cassette of some of the music, please, because I was working on this music. I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I sent her a cassette, but also a note saying, um, would you like to go to dinner? Would you like to meet and go to the beach? Would you like to go and play tennis? Would you <laughs> like to go and see a movie? I, I wrote about 20 things, you know, that we could do together. And she got back to me. Here's my phone number. She phoned me up and uh, we got together two days later and that was it. Love. Okay. <laughs> You're British. She's American. You know, it's been 30 years already. But are there any innate differences in people in having a relationship with someone from another country? Yeah, she's smart and I'm a dumb guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a singer. That's what I do. I'm a singer in a band. <laughs> okay. So you wrote this stuff and then you went on tour with Paul Green's uh, rock Academy. orchestra. Right. Yeah. How did that come together? Well, I met Paul some 20 years. 20 some years ago, actually. Um, I was on tour with Yes for a little while and uh, we were playing at the Philadelphia Forum, Spectrum. And uh, after the show, came outside the dressing room and there were some young kids, you know, about a dozen kids with t shirts, School of Rock. And I said, Oh, guys, you're in a rock school? And they looked at me and said, Yes, we are. And I said, what kind of music do you play? We like Frank Zappa, and we actually like Yes. And I thought, oh, young kids, how old are you? 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And then Paul Green came up, and he was the guy who Jack Black played in the movie. Paul Green comes up and says, hey, John, how are you doing? Uh, these are my students. Would you like to come to Philadelphia and uh, work with these kids? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, he sends me a cassette. In those days, we had cassettes, you know. And um, 
it was it was this the kids playing heart of the sunrise which is an incredibly difficult uh piece of music to say the least and i called him up and said well you didn't tell me they were this good <laughs> and he said listen john we're coming to la in about three days would you get up and sing with the band and i said yeah because they, they had a documentary that they were promoting in los angeles so i said yeah i'll get up and sing and it was great fun they played it so well the song and then i struck struck up a relationship with paul and he invited me to go to philadelphia to to sort of hang with the kids and sort of teach them a little bit about stage presence and that kind of thing so i did so me and jane went to uh, philadelphia the, in the beginning of February, which is the coldest month you can ever go to a city, you know. But we just enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, that's many years ago, 24 years ago. And uh, so it's life, you know. And then I went on tour with them for a couple of uh, short tours, one in, in East uh, America and one in the West. And then uh, about 10 years later, went on, on, on tour with them again. 10 years later, went on tour with them again. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing the, the, a European tour with them this summer. They're just beautiful, young, talented people. What can go wrong? 24 young, talented people. Okay. I know they're good because I once did their convention and they played a Frank Zappa song, blew my mind, they even knew it. Mm -mm. But, okay, they come to you they're teenagers. Right. It's bad enough being on the road with 20-something musicians. Yeah. What's it like being on the road with all these teenagers? Well, it's, it's, it's great fun because uh, they're young. You know, they, they, they're fun, they're, ho they're hopeful, they're grateful, they're thankful, and so on. That's what you are when you're young, when you're 14, 15, 16. You know, there's no point in getting around it. They are... Youth, youthful, joyful, and exuberant people, and they can play their instruments. Okay, so let's just say you decide you're going to go on the road with them, which you have a number of times. How far in advance do you give them a set list? If you were to call it, how many songs do they learn? Is the set list set in stone? Yeah, the, Paul Green is brilliant, he's, he's a real character. And, and quite remarkable teaching young musicians to get their act together. And he does it in such a great way. And he's the guy that says, do you want to do Close to the Edge? I said, yeah. Let's, do you want to do On You and I? Yeah. Do you want to do um, Starship Trooper? Yeah. And, you know, he just gives me a list. So I'll say, yeah, I'll, say, I'll sing them all. So I got into a thing this last tour we did in August just last year. I said, Let, why don't we do some mashups, you know? We could do, um, you guys can play uh, Kashmir, Zeppelin, and it goes straight into long distance runaround. So Kashmir happens, and then I start doing a Yes song. And then we started doing um, Eminem's first hit record. I can't remember what it's called, but it sounds so good when the kids play it, and, uh, and that goes into Starship Trooper. So, you know, it's like you mash them together. 
And uh, we did a. Uh, so, if you're long. playing cashmere, are they playing it instrumentally, or are you singing the Robert Plant? No, part? The, no, I'm no, I'm not singing it. The girl T uh, Tess, brilliant singer, she sings it, and I do some harmony, and I'm playing bass. Wow! Very badly. <laughs> and what keeps you on the road at this point in your life? The adventure of it, uh, experiencing audiences. Uh, I just finished a tour with the Bang Geeks, a wonderful bunch of musicians who live out of uh, Long Island area of New York. And uh, somebody sent me a video of them performing, of all things, Heart of the Sunrise. This is about a year ago. And I kind of freaked out. These guys are so damn good. They're, they're, it's like note for note, exactly correct. They sounded like the yes of the 70s. So... And it wasn't that they just, they, they copied the music, of course, but they didn't sound like the record. They sounded like them performing it with a, a certain edge to it. So I thought about it for a month or two and uh, called up, uh, I got the phone number of the bass player who runs the show, Richie Castellano. And uh, I said, Richie, how you doing? It's John Anderson. He said, hey, is that you, John? I said, yeah, it's me. Why don't we go on the road and do some classics and epics? Richie, he's still there. <laughs> what I want to do is do four epics and the rest of classics. So we do Close to the Edge, Gates of Delirium, Awaken, which is heaven, and um, Ritual from Topographic. And we can do them, and then we'll, we'll do a bunch of, you know, classics like i've seen all good people you know roundabout and <laughs> that kind of thing so we put together the show we just did uh, 12 shows of on the west coast about a month ago two months or six weeks ago and that was a great great fun to work with these guys so hopefully we'll we'll do it every year okay you called yourself are you your own manager how does it work I'm looking for a manager. Okay, well, you put it out there at this point. Well, you know, <laughs> someone like you, <laughs> someone like you at this late date, obviously has an opinion on managers. I can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> so, what what are you looking for? Somebody who understands me. Which is a, it's a hard, it's a hard gig, but very interesting. <laughs> and then who actually books the tours? You have an agent? Yeah, we have an agent, really great guy, Steve. And uh, of course, Paul Green booked the European tour. We start off in Budapest and then we play in uh, Amsterdam and then we play in Madrid and so on. So, so when you play these gigs with other, either the Long Island band or the Paul Green band, yeah, what's the audience? Is the audience the fans from the seventies? Who comes? Combination. You, you get a lot of you know, you get classic uh, Yes fans, you know, and they say, "Oh, we're going to go and see John Anderson sing again," which would be good. And uh, you know, I always put on a good show whenever I work. Uh, I love it. And you get some young people coming to see these young artists, young teenagers. And uh, 
They've already done quite a few festivals in Europe over the years. There's a classic uh, Frank Zappa festival, so everybody goes on and plays Frank Zappa, you know. So it's always a lot of fun to 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 be around that kind of energy. You're not quite sure the audience are going to the audience are going to have a good time because we have a good time, and that's the way I think about music. If you're having a good time, the audience will get it, and generally it happens that way. And then, you know, you were, a lot of your success was with a band, with multiple members, different songwriters, the 70s accounting. To what degree did you get ripped off or you had a fair shake? Ripped off? How do you mean? Sorry. Financially. Oh, yeah, that happens. You know, nobody escapes that event in 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 the music world, shall we say, or in any kind of world. But it, it never bothered me that much. Uh, I have some funny stories about it, but uh, to me it was like, you know, you read what you saw. Well, tell a couple of funny stories. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't tell you. Well, um, <laughs> no, I can't think about it now. Sorry. Okay, and... After all these years, after essentially 50 years, how are you doing financially? Doing good. You know, I've got a lovely little house here up in the hills away from the village life. You know, it's too noisy down there. So we live on this hill and uh, surrounded by deer and antelope play. You know, with the deer and the antelope play. Yeah, I got the song reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm creating all the time music and stories and musicals and all this kind of idea of music being forever broadening your mind and thoughts and so on. I, I just feel that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so where exactly did you grow up? Originally in Accrington, which is uh, north of Manchester. 29 miles north of Manchester, a little town called Accrington, which is famous for, well, probably many things, but the main thing they were famous for, Accrington Stanley football team. They were one of the first 11 teams that created the first league in the history of soccer. And to what degree were you interested in playing soccer? Well, I was the ball boy. And I, I go and get the ball and throw it back on the pitch. <laughs> I was the ball boy. And then, but I wanted to play for Accrington Stanley. That was my gig. And I had a track suit and I'd play, I'd rehearse when, when the, the, the players were doing their, what do you call it? Rehearsal. I suppose it is. When they kick the ball around on the, on the car park, I'd be there, I'd be there dribbling away and, a little small. I was very small for my age. And uh, the guy who was the trainer of Accrington Stanley, Leslie, Leslie Cocker, who eventually became the trainer to England in the World wow. Cup, uh, said to me, John, you're good at dribbling, but you're too small. I think you shouldn't be playing this game. Just be, just be a ball boy, okay? And that's what I was. I was happily told, you can't play for England. <laughs> and I thought, okay, so that I'll I'll join my brother's rock and roll band. He had a rock and roll band called the Warriors, and there were two singers: him, my brother Tony, and this guy called Charlie, who actually gave up singing in the band and became a hairdresser. And uh, and it just happens to be that at that moment in time, the Beatles had released an, a song called "Love Me Do," and Tony, my brother who he sang all the Elvis Presley songs in the band. And I joined the band and started singing. Uh, who was that guy with the dark glasses? Um, Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison. I did all his songs because I'm an auto tenor, you see. Crying, crying. Okay, let's go back a little bit. <laughs> How many kids are in the family? Uh, three, three boys and a girl. And where were you in the hierarchy? I was uh, third boy. And what did your parents do for a living? Um, they just had a good time living. And my, my dad was very, he was a traveling salesman. They were, they were ballroom champions of uh, Lancashire because there was a big cup on the, um, over the fireplace. And they were happy and uh, it was a wonderful life because I, I worked on the local farm with my brother Tony since I was then 10 years old, 11 years old. And we sang Everly Brother songs all the time. It was like, you know, in all weathers, I mean, serious weather up, up in the north of England, you get a lot of snow, a lot of rain, more rain, and then a lot of snow. <laughs> then sunny days around Easter. It used to be beautiful. But we used to deliver milk milk the cows, shovel a lot of cow dung, what we call shit. <laughs> a lot of poop. 
and I'd shovel it and put it in a wheelbarrow and tip it over into to the tip. And all that was used for uh, spreading all over the fields to make the grass grow. It's called, um, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> Fertilizer. Fertilizer. Well done, Bob. Okay. So let's go back to that era. What kind of kid were you? Were you popular, good student, bad student? Well, yeah, I was a nice guy. You know, I used to run errands for my mom and do this and that and the other, go and play football up on the car park with local kids and uh, play cricket even on the car park with local kids. And one of the guys that I used to play against lived a couple of blocks down Water Street. His name was David Lloyd. And he actually played for England cricket test match. He's one of the most famous uh, commentators now in cricket. Sweet guy, too. So did your parents teach you to dance? No. <laughs> the ballroom dancing, you know, is a different, different world. It was all that kind of um, Fred Astaire type dancing. Well, <laughs> did you have to go to them to the, with them to the ballroom? Yeah, we could go down the road and watch them dance around, and it was really beautiful to watch. But I was more interested that by the, by the time I was 10, 11, I was interested in being in a, in a, in a band. So I, I joined the band, and it was called the Little John Skiffle Group. And I played the washboard. And we were very loud and noisy. But we were okay. playing all American music, actually. A lot of uh, classic American country music. You're born just before the Second World War ends. So what was life like in the 50s in England for you? Um, <laughs> delivering milk. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of a couple of things, in terms of music, you look through a U.S. lens, we have uh, Ike Turner, Rock, Rocket 88, we have Rock Around the Clock, then we have Elvis and then it's sort of a dry period with teen idols, although we have the Beach Boys and Four Seasons, and then come the Beatles. What was right. it like from a UK viewpoint? Well, what happened was uh, my brother had a motorbike. He, he actually, you ever see Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones? The Wild Worse. Ones? Yeah, that's, that's my brother. He had the helmet. He had, no, the helmet. He didn't use a helmet. He had a cap, dark glasses and a big shield on this motorbike, a Sunbeam motorbike, which was like a shaft-driven, noisy bugger. And uh, he said to me, John, we're going to go and see the Beatles. They're playing at Southport. And this is like April 63. Yeah, around that time. I said, okay. So it rained all the way there because, you know, where I lived, it rained all the time. This was North Sea or something like that. And... Uh, so we actually went to see the Beatles performing in the Floral Hall in Southport in April 63. And of course, we'd heard on the radio, Love Me Do, and we, we all liked it, you know. And we sang all the way to the gig and uh, went in. And uh, there were probably about, I'd say, 500, 600 people, mostly guys and a bunch of girls at the front. Mostly guys, sort of, you know, teenagers. They were called, uh, you were either a, a, a rocker or a hippie. 
these were sort of a mixture. But there's this kind of the energy was so powerful, and the Beatles sounded so amazing that you get involved in it. He starts shouting and screaming after every song. They, they didn't scream in when they were playing. The girls at the front didn't scream. They just waited till they finished the song. You know, twist and shout, and then yeah, wonderful. And uh, it was a revelation for me and my brother because we had a band. And so we learned all the first album of the Beatles and we played that and feel, felt like we were in the Beatles. Sort of. We even had a Beatle haircut. And uh, we went to see them about six months later in Blackburn, which is only five miles away uh, from Accrington, and uh, got to the gig and couldn't hear them. <laughs> Everybody was screaming. Everybody was screaming. You could hardly hear them. It was fantastic. The band with your brother, were you playing gigs out? Were you getting paid or were you just yeah. having fun playing? No, no, no. We got paid. We we played working men's clubs. Very important. I don't working know men's what a, clubs. I, I don't know what a working men's club is. Okay. A working men's club is when you go there and you set up your kit, drum kit and your amplifier. And then the first person that goes on stage in front of about 100 local people all drinking a lot of beer and the first guy comes on he's a comedian tells a few jokes and some of them dirty and some not and the crowd are getting yeah that's fantastic where's the stripper and this so the stripper comes on and she does her stripping and then we go on after the stripper and the problem was that, that she would have to come past us in this hallway as we we're standing there to go on stage that she has to come past naked and it was frightening, <laughs> very frightening for a young lad like me. <laughs> anyway, uh, we go on and play four songs, then come back off, and then the comedian will go on, then bingo, and then another stripper would go on. And that's a working men's club. And do you remember how much they would pay the group? Five pounds, which paid for the petrol and uh, some fish and chips. <laughs> Okay, so you're working. How long do you go to school? Till I was 14. And then I said, I've had enough. Because I wasn't learning anything in the last two months that I was at the school, which is which actually called St. Christopher's, which is kind of nice. Uh, that St. Christopher is the patron saint of travel. And that's what I did. <laughs> I traveled. <laughs> I'm still traveling now. Okay, so you're 14 and you stop going to school. Your parents are cool with that? Yeah, because got a job in the, in, on the farm, helping to, to keep the ball, ball rolling at home. And so, you know. Okay, you're working on the farm. I've actually worked on a farm, and it, can be, the, it yeah. can be very hard work. Yeah. So I can't imagine you're working on the farm saying, well, this is my future. So what, was, what were you thinking in your brain as you're doing all this? Well, obviously, we had the rock and roll band that we'd play every weekend. And then, you know, um, I don't know. We, you don't think about much other than just hearing the next hit song on the radio, learning it and going on stage and playing it. And uh, just getting into the idea of uh, maybe one day we can have a hit record. And then this, this, this really happened. 
we were actually rehearsing in our little rehearsal room downtown in Accrington there. And this, this guy came up from Manchester. And I think he was, uh, they call him Jack the Lad, a guy that seems to know everything. He came in and heard us playing. He says, I think you guys are really good. Uh, do you know, do you, want, do you want to make a hit record? And we said, yeah. And they said, uh, well, next Thursday, can you come down to Manchester and play for my friends? I have a couple of friends who've got a lot of money and they can make sure you have a hit record. And I said, oh, that'd be great. And Tony said, yeah, that'd be really good. <laughs> he didn't talk like that, but he said, it'd be really good. And uh, the guy said, so this Thursday, can, can you come down to Manchester and play to, to my two friends? And my brother Tony said, no, I'm sorry. No, we're, we're, we're playing at Paddy Ham Working Men's Club. And the guy said, well, cancel it. Oh, no, I can't cancel that. We promised to go and play. And the guy said, well, screw you. I'll go and find another band. So he went five miles away to Blackburn and got in touch with a band called um, I'll think about it in a minute. And uh, Morton, Morton, somebody's, Morton, somebody's five. Uh, Morton, anyway, they were called as something. And uh, he went to them, and within six weeks, they were top of the charts with a song wow. called, yeah, he, he, he actually could do it. In the end, there was, you could buy anything, you know. And it was uh, Juliet, I think the song was. And, uh, <laughs> Such wonderful moments in my life. <laughs> okay, so you missed this big opportunity. What's your first break, if there is one? There wasn't one. I broke my... <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, well, basically what we did was kind of cool because um, we, we decided to go to play in clubs in Germany and Scandinavia. It was the, the, way, the way to be able to learn your trade, if you like. You know, you, you go and play in Cologne, Frankfurt, Hamburg, and then um, Helsinki. And you do two weeks in each t a city, and you, you go around, you go round and round doing that. And of course, that was an incredible time. Uh, it was like the mid-60s. There was so much music around. Everywhere you looked and listened, it was great music. And uh, we, we, we became a good band, you know, at that time, I thought. And uh, we were doing, basically, you play from seven till midnight and 15-minute breaks. And the, the, the manager of the club will definitely give you some pills to keep you awake. <laughs> so we started on that train of, let's take a pill now, man, you know. So, yeah, but you're not supposed to take it until later on in the night. No, I want to take it now. It makes me speed. <laughs> it's called speed. And that's what we all did. And we did all these gigs around and round and round, go around in circles. And then the greatest thing that happened was uh, Sergeant Pepper came out. So by then we were on speed, our marijuana. <laughs> it's called hashish in Europe. And LSD. I said, okay, let's try this stuff. And then we put on uh, Sergeant Pepper. That really blew everybody's mind in, in the world, I think, because it was brilliant. Uh, I just wanted to be a Beatle. 
<laughs> How did you get these gigs in Germany and Scandinavia? Oh, there's an agent. There's always an agent. There's always somebody, you know, you ask, ask around, you know. Okay, you hear Sgt. Pepper, which really was mind-blowing. Yeah. Especially there were no singles on it. It was a thing no. unto itself. Yeah. And you're doing these European tours. What's the next step for you? Uh, well, the next step was we, we, we played a show in uh, Sweden. No, Copenhagen. Beautiful place. Um uh, and uh, we had to do this one more show before we went to the next town, which was Cologne, and then down to Munich, and then up to Hamburg. Same, same thing. And uh, I just happened to take a LSD tab, and I went to see one of the greatest movies ever. It was uh, Doctor Chivago. <laughs> so Doctor Chivago, I was so in love with that woman, whatever her name was. Um, anyway. Um, went to see that and then went to the gig um, and I noticed that everybody in the band had, t had taken some LSD so we'd look at each other we're supposed to be playing music we're standing there on the stage and there's people looking at us saying well come on then get on with the music and we're all looking at each other saying how do we do this <laughs> we couldn't put it together you know mentally we couldn't put it together it's just not possible so the guy fired us, and we went down to Cologne and carried on with doing uh, seven hours of singing and playing every night. And uh, and then one day, I just had a vision, a musical vision, and I just had this idea. We weren't we were a pretty good band. I thought we were a pretty good band, the Warriors, you know. And uh, so I I went to the bedroom and uh, woke everybody up, say. Come on, guys, let's rehearse, guys. Go away, John, please. <laughs> they all said in unison, go away. But guys, we've got to rehearse, man. We can be really good. I've got some ideas. Musically, we could do a little bit of some. John, will you go away, please? They said in unison. And I said, okay, I'm packing my bags. I'm leaving, which I did. I left. I got my suitcase and I went to Munich. And the rest is in my autobiography. <laughs> it's a good story, though. Okay. At what point in this story do you start playing original material? Probably not until I got to London. Um, I was, I, a couple of great things happened where I had a visitation um, where I was sitting in this beautiful English gardens in Munich. And I was mumbling to myself over and over, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? What's going on? What's going on? And the voice said, John, nothing matters. And I thought, who the heck was that? There's nobody around me. I'm in the middle of a garden. And the voice said, John, Nothing matters. Well, that did it. I said, oh my God. Somebody's watching me. <laughs> or watching over me. What the heck is going on? I'm thinking. But something really beautiful happened. 
that um, I ran to the apartment that I was staying in and there was a, a, a telegram on the floor when I opened the door. The telegram it was from my mum and it said, John, there's a band in Frankfurt, want you to sing with them. And here's the number. And that was it. It was like, somebody wants me. Because that, that's why I was so screwed up. I just thought nobody wanted me. But they did, and I went to work with them for three months, and then I went to London. And that's where I met Chris. How did you meet Chris Squire? Well, I was working in a bar over the Marquee Club, a very famous club in wow, London. Yeah. And all the people that played the Marquee came up to the club, you know, normal. And I clean up and wash up and help, help around to survive. And, uh, you know, people like uh, The Who, they wander in, have a few drinks, and then uh, even um, everybody who played <clears throat> at the Marquee Club would, uh, would pop up to the club. And uh, you met all the greats of that period. It was like 68, 69. So I was there cleaning up one evening, and the guy that ran the club, a uh, really nice guy said, uh, I know you're looking for a band, John. I said, yeah, I'm looking for a band. He said, well, there's a bass player over there. I think he might be looking for a singer. I thought, oh, okay. So I went over to this very tall guy and said, uh, hi, my name's John. And he said, my name's Chris. And I said, so you have a band? He said, yeah. What's the band called? He said, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you want to do? I said, well, I love singing and I, I love uh, Paul, you know, Paul McCartney, of course. You know, I liked uh, his voice and my voice is high like that. And uh, he said, oh, what kind of music do you listen to? Though I said, oh, I, I love Simon and Garfunkel. I think Paul Simon's really got his chops together songwriting-wise, you know. And he said, do you write songs? I said, well, I mess around with my guitar. I'm not that, not good. He said, well, why don't you come to rehearsals of my band, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop, tomorrow? And I said, oh, okay then. And uh, before, before we parted, he said, why don't you come back to my apartment? We'll, we'll, we'll jam and, and we wrote a couple of songs. And I thought, this guy's really nice, you know. And the following day, I went to the rehearsal place to work with his band, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop. And... Um, the drummer had left <laughs> because he, he was getting paid. <laughs> nobody got paid in this band. But uh, he went to Paris to work in another band. So I got a copy of the Mabel, uh, I got a copy of uh, Melody Maker and I looked for drummer looking for band. And there it was, has, has a Ludwig kit and a van. My name is Bill Bruford. I said, he's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so we phoned him up and he came the following day and he joined the band. And then the question was, well, what are we going to call ourselves? Because uh, Chris said, well, Maple Grease Toy Shop's pretty cool. And I said, no, nah. <laughs> the, the best band that I ever heard was uh, an Irish name, an Irish band. They called themselves The, The. <laughs> Do you remember them? Of course. The, 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 I thought that was perfect. Very Irish. So we rehearsed and uh, rehearsed and uh, did a show. We did most of the show just doing um, 
funky version of um, Midnight Hour. And at this point, were Tony and Peter in the band? Tony who? Oh, Tony, Tony. yeah. Tony was the keyboard player. And Peter Banks was the guitar player. Yeah. It's just the drummer left. <laughs> How to get a thing going, you know. But yeah, you believe, you know, that's basically it. So you play this funky version of In the Midnight Hour. Yeah. And, and continue. About, where does it go from there? For about an hour. We, well, we just had to make up time. We, did, we knew four songs. One of them we'd uh, written, I'd written with, uh, with Chris that first night. And then another song that Chris had. And then we, we did Midnight Hour. It was just a show, a tour. Uh, not a show, not a tour. <laughs> it was just our first show together. And we thought we were pretty good. You know. And how does it become yes? And how do you get a record deal? Well, that's the story. And uh, it, it was ge just generally, okay, everybody put a name of the band in a hat. Okay. Because I, I started to become the boss. They used to call me Napoleon because I was small. And uh, so I, I'd organize. i say, okay, everybody write down a name. I wrote down world. Chris wrote down life. It's got to be short. And Peter Banks wrote down, yes. And that was it. Because we, we, we went through what we put in there. And we went, what's this? Yes. Is it the yes? Peter said, no, no, it's just yes. And we looked at each other and said, yes. <laughs> that was it. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, you have a name. You played one gig, long version of Midnight Hour. How do you end up getting a record deal with Atlantic? Oh, that's that's another story. Um, the great thing happened was um, Armour Ertigan is coming from New York to see you guys. That was... Uh, wait, 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 wait. That's a big thing. You're nobodies. Right. Who, who is the connection with Amit? Okay. Here's the story. So what happened was we were doing pretty good. We started doing gigs in, in and around London. We did some in Manchester, and then we did some up north and of England. And uh, we, we got tight, you know. And we started playing good, and you know, Bill and Chris were really rocking, and we got going. And uh, got a phone call from our friend who ran that club, the Chass Club, the Chase, and he said, "There's uh, there's a guy who wants your phone number." We didn't have phone numbers. I said, "Can you can you phone him? He wants to see if you can play tonight at the 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 pretty famous Speakeasy." club in london and he said uh, they want you to play tonight because the band that's supposed to be there just got stopped from getting on a plane in new york and we said so who 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 do we how are we going to replace he said um somebody in the family tree and we said what the heck's that there's a band called the family so we got went to the, the club and started setting up to do our little show that we had. And all of a sudden, people started coming in. There were all people at Pete Townsend who came in and a couple of other guys from the big bands. And, and I said, who are we replacing? I said, uh, Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> what are we going to do? Well, let's just play, man. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. And all the people, Paul McCartney, was all these people came, these droves of people came to see Sly and the Family Stone. So <laughs> we did our show, you know, we were, we were kind of nervous and frightened, <laughs> but we played hard and we got it done, a show and a da, 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 da. a midnight hour. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> I can't remember the songs we were doing, but we were doing some good, good music at that time. We were doing actually variations on uh, kind of uh, themes like um, Yes Became Famous For, which is uh, creating introductions to a song and then middle sections and building it up and, you know, like structure, using structure. And uh, it kind of worked and uh, went down very well and we passed a lot of joints around <laughs> to see and make sure everybody was happy and stoned. <laughs> oh boy, what a night. And that was the beginning of our friendship with the manager of that club. And a uh, really sweet guy. And um, he was the one that got in touch with somebody at Atlantic Records. And they said, we heard about what happened. You, you did a great job for Sly and the Family Stone. And Roy, Roy uh, was the manager. And uh, he said, I think I might be able to get you to meet uh, Armour Ertigan. And uh, maybe you could be on Atlantic Records. And I thought, 
any record company will do. <laughs> I don't care who it is, but we need to make a record sort of thing. Because I thought we were playing pretty good on stage. It'd be good to record some of the show, uh, put it out as a record and see how we go. And we had a couple of songs that we thought were slightly commercial, but not really. And um, I think commercial became sort of a, uh, dare I say, a nasty word in my mind. I just, we're, we're never going to be commercial. I don't want to be commercial. I'm too old. I was 27 years old or something. I'm, I feel too old. I don't want to be a pop star sort of thing. So we carried along the train of writing music uh, that became uh, Time in a Word and things like that from, from the second album. I can't remember much about the first album, even though I'm well, Okay, like, I got a few questions about the first album. Okay, Before sorry. we get there... Ahmed comes to see you, and then what happens? Oh, I've mentioned this many times, and I'll mention it again. Well, Ahmed, incredibly dressed, very uh, Turkish guy, beautiful. He looked immaculate, like a million bucks. And uh, he was producing the great people. You know, he was, at that time, he was producing Ray Charles and... Uh, um, Gosh, I wish I could remember their names. Uh, I will do in a minute. All the great people that were on Atlantic Records, unbelievable. And he came to see us. Anyway, we played our little four songs, and I went to the, the loo to have a pee, and Roy, happily, comes running in and starts to have a pee and says, John, I'm really going to get this guy, this American guy. I'm going to make sure you can make a lot of money. I'm going to get you the best contract. you've." And at that moment in time, Somebody pulled the chain in the toilet next to us, and out comes Armour Ertigan. <laughs> said, oh, well, that blew that. <laughs> oh, it's a great story. So, Armour <laughs> is interested? Yeah, he signed us up for 10 years. <laughs> you know, at three points, whatever it was in those days. But we, we managed to slowly but surely get better deal along the way when... It took us a couple of albums to make any sense about what we were doing, and then we, we, we did the Yes album, and that was really when we sort of felt we're in the game. We're in the game. We're happening. Okay. We're on tour. We're Let's good. start with the first album, which is where I come in. How'd, how'd you decide to cover every little thing by the Beatles? Every little thing she does. It's, it's a great song. You know, and we we did it very well. You know, that's when Yes started to sort of uh, expand an original song into something a little bit more rocking and jiving or whatever. Da dum. <laughs> but that was the whole idea. I think Chris was brilliant at uh, letting me, you know, listening to me, and then letting the band try it out because you know there was doubters at all they would just say john why do you why do you want to do this why do you want to do this and i'd say just try it out <laughs> just try it out so we had a song that i was writing yours notice grace and and they're trying to start a, a beginning of it so anyway that's the third album <laughs> so on the first album you do that every little thing that yeah. was not you know there are certain songs by the beatles that are covered all the time i didn't know yeah. another cover at that particular point in time and you rearranged it and made it your own i mean it was just yeah. utterly fantastic yeah 
that was part of my experience of listening to at that time i was listening to a lot of uh music by no i hadn't got to sibelius by then but i'd listened to um the planet suite and things like that the very commercial symphonic music and and drag ideas out of that and who is it did that as well king crimson you know they were doing all sorts of Stravinskyisms here there and everywhere. but everybody started listening to the classic music that was written 150 years ago or 50 years ago symphonic music and they try to bring it into the modern rock and roll and that's basically what happened it was just the idea of structure structure will make it work if you've got a good intro you can always play it in the middle and then at the end you know okay but there are some originals on that first album i think are just great yesterday and today looking yeah. around survival yeah. yeah i love survival survival that's story that's the going to be my title of my autobiography survival and other stories so the first album comes out i mean it was like a mystery in america i was actually turned on by my dentist which is something that didn't happen back then but what was the album comes out what was your experience do you know i don't remember very much about it i think everything was a blur at that time because you 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 were doing interviews people wanted to know what you thought <laughs> which was not very much but just general people wanting you to great guy called chris welch he was a big fan of our beginnings and the melody maker he'd do interviews about this and that and um it's just one of those things you 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 you, you pull apart an album you've just made it and then you, you look back and think well it wasn't that good and the second one was time and a word that wasn't that good either you know you, you just go through that emotion of doing it thinking it's really really good oh it really sounds great and then you listen back to it and you think within a couple of three months you're, you're bored it's not working you're performing it but you're thinking about the next step you're going to take and that's been my juxtaposition as, as a singer in a band i don't play anything i just have to sing all the time and uh, pretend i can play the guitar which i couldn't hardly play but uh, I, I was always thinking about what we got to be doing something better and then people come into your life i, I met uh, we were doing a, a tv show in in france and uh, it was so funny because uh, we were told not to be too loud <laughs> of course we were very loud at that time and um so we we started playing i think it was yours notice grace and the <laughs> the credits came up and they, they cut us off we'd waited their whole day to do this song at the end of this it was a, it was a sort of a game like um come on down you know that kind of tv show and uh, so we waited a day makeup and everything to, to play it and just when we started playing, it was too loud. So they, they faded us out and the credits came up at the end of the, and that night I met Keith Jarrett. And that really? Was, yeah. Cause he was playing in a trio on the TV show. And he said to me, do you want to come and see my, I'm going to, I'm going to on the left bank, you know, I'm just going to do a jam session tonight. And I thought jam session, 
That's really cool. So I went just to see him. I sat by myself and he came in and started playing the piano and the drummer was there playing the drums and uh, he, he kind of looked at the drummer and said, where's the bass player? <laughs> <laughs> and the drummer said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm French. And uh, so they're playing. And he's, Keith Jarrett's just diving away on the piano. And I couldn't believe how good this guy was. He was 18 years old. And then the bass player came. He was six foot, so handsome. And he brought a real big stand-up bass. And he starts... <laughs> so Jarrett's playing away with the drummer. And he starts tuning up his bass. <laughs> And uh, I could see Kichara going, what the fuck are you doing, man? We're playing jazz. And all of a sudden, the bass player went, boom, 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 Brilliant. All of a sudden, he was locked in. And Jarrett screamed, and they carried on playing for an hour. It was like magic. You learn about jazz, real jazz, when you see that happen. Okay. First album comes out, America, almost well, no that noise. Was good. Yeah, Time in a America. Word comes out. It's like a secret. You can barely yeah. find it in the record store. I know. Where does Brian Lane come in? Well, we had we had a, a manager, Roy, who was really great guy, just uh, not working in 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 tandem with what we were trying to do musically, say, and uh, so. We were just invited to meet this company that actually, it was the company that created a movie, a very famous movie called um, Platoon. Okay. They were pretty big in the business world. You know, we were very lowly and who, who are we to even go through their front door sort of thing. But we went through the front door and then we were introduced to Brian and... Uh, Brian started to manage us along with other people. There was a lot of people involved. It wasn't just this band. And that was that. And um, from then on, it was just knowing that, gosh, we are sort of stable, shall we say, but a little bit awkward at times in where we're going musically. Who's Who wants to go this way? It was that story. When, when I went to say, come on, we've got to rehearse, guys, got to rehearse. I felt like Pinocchio. Come on, you got to rehearse. Let's do this. And they say, not John, just leave, leave us alone. What do you mean? So yeah, that sort of thing happened in a way that uh, it just happened that um, I felt out of balance, if you like. And it's, it's a funny way of thinking it, that I, I was in this uh, speakeasy and it was very early in the night. and. Um, I walked past this band. There was nobody in the club. I think there's two or three people drinking. And they were playing really good, but the guitarist was really good. And he was playing what you would call one of the most beautiful guitars I've ever, ever seen. It was a Gibson, wonderful-shaped guitar, and he was playing the hell out of it. And, you know, and they were doing good music. I don't know what kind of music they were doing, but he was good. And I mentioned it to Chris that... Um, where are we going musically? Because I don't know, you know. And Chris said, well, you know, we need to decide. Sometimes you've got to change one of the guys in the band if things aren't rolling correctly, you know. 
And uh, I said, well, I just saw this guy in the band called Bodast. And Chris said, yeah, I know. I've, I know. Well, I know him. I've seen him. So let's try it out. So you try somebody out and the, the, the shape of the band evolves, one might say, when an, another musician comes in. And um, that's when I linked together with Steve and all of a sudden I was uh, in musical heaven because we could write music together very quickly. With Chris, it was now and again music, we'd write something. But with Steve, it's like, Every day we're writing a couple of ideas, a couple of ideas, a couple of ideas, more and more and more. So it was a spontaneous combustion of uh, musical energy that got us into um, the fragile world. Okay, so does Brian Lane come in after the first two albums? Is that approximately when he comes in? Yeah. Okay, Steve Howe comes in. How do you get rid of Peter Banks and what does he say? Well, of course, he was upset, you know. I think we were, I was upset anyway, that we had to think about changing somebody in the band. It's just one of the things. You kind of live with it and sit down and say, well, what is the best for the future of where we're going? And that's what you do. And uh, I even talked to him about what he would do now. He had a couple of guys he wanted to work with anyway, so he wanted to go with this other band. And we said, yeah, that would be, that would Good luck, you know. What are you going to do? Good luck, and uh, okay. And so then you get on with it. The Yes album is a great leap forward from what had come before. Yeah, we have Yours Is No Disgrace, Starship Trooper. I've seen all good people. Uh, did these all come from you now meeting and writing with Steve? Yeah, it's a combination of my suggestion was very simple. Let's get out of London. Let's go and find a farmhouse, cottage, rental, and we can be somewhere totally different than where we are now. And we found a place in Devon. We all went there to work. You're there. You connect. You become more than what you were before because you're getting to know each other, know each other's uh, good parts, quirky parts, nice parts, whatever. But you, you, you. You're, you're connected. And I thought that was the way to go. And um, I have some great memories of uh, being in that farmhouse, which uh, Steve Howe lives there now. And uh, I, I, the memories were really good because it was, uh, it was like very, to say the least, it was kind of jazz rock. We, we, we would go there. We would try this. We would try that. And, uh, the idea of working as a, a group became more like a, f a family, if you like. Okay, we're, we're here, we're stuck together. You know, somebody's going to make breakfast. <laughs> I think we had a roadie who made breakfast and things like that. But you're actually together uh, for the first time without any outside influence. And that was really crucial for me at that time because I knew... These were great, talented people. I felt very comfortable at writing lyrics and melodies. I was a melody crazy guy, you know. Every time I every time I heard anything, I'd start writing a melody in my head and singing ideas. So I felt very comfortable about where we were going, and uh, it worked out. I said, 
basically we'll learn all this music as well as the songs that were pretty getting known for America. Uh, every little thing we still had in the show. These new songs, we should we should go on the road and, and play them, play them as a, as a as a practice to go in the studio rather than go in the studio and start start off with the drums and the kit and the bit. Today, no, I think we've got to play it on in the studio. So the only way we can play it in the studio is go on the road as a band playing some new music as well as this old music from the first couple of albums. And that was the way. The way it worked. And by then, we had a feeling that we were getting great reaction from the audiences who were coming to see us again and again. So no matter if we went up to play Birmingham, you'd always see the similar crowd of people would come. And, the, and they, you just feel, you know what it's like, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> you just feel that everything is happening. You go, well, this is definitely better than we were six months ago. And then we went in and recorded um, what became the Yes album, and then Fragile. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, so you record the Yes album. In America, it was commercially more available. You didn't hear it on the radio. I know you were doing interviews, etc. Was What was your experience on the inside relative to the success of uh, the Yes album? Um, how do you mean? Sorry. When you well, say it seems artistically, it's a great leap forward from the two previous albums, especially the right. second album. Right. And 
in retrospect, everyone can see how great it was. Did you feel from the end standpoint of your band that, wait a second, we're blowing up? Or did you still feel, way we got a big hill to climb? I think we were just feeling good about, but we had a really good album. We were performing it and audiences were great. Uh, the next step, I, I have to get myself in chronological, I can't say the word, chronological order after the, the Yes album was to go into the Fragile album. And right, that, but before we get to Fragile, right. how does Rick Wakeman get in the band? Well, that's that. That was the the reason we called it fragile, was because being in a band was very fragile. Never quite sure what's going to happen next, and something was going haywire on the on the American tour. When we went on tour doing the S album, we were doing uh, with Jethro Tull, I think. We were on tour and m m magnified in front of five thousand people. All of a sudden, ten thousand people. This is a, you're, you're magnifying your 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 creativity and how big can we get and how big should we be and you know shouldn't we have great lighting systems and things like that and so you're growing you're just growing and you're thinking well the music's got to grow as well at that time the, the moog had just come out with a new system of moog and the sounds you could get, and Keith Emerson was playing a Moog and stuff, and it just happened that um, we did a track. I think I think it was yours, not his grace, with the Moog theme and everything, and it just happened that um, Tony wasn't that interested at that time in creating other sounds other than the organ, which he played amazingly well. But it just happened that at that time we we'd actually done a show with. Um, Rick Wakeman's band, uh, you probably know him, you remember the name, I don't. Uh, and I just thought, this Rick Wakeman, is so, he's, he's quite brilliant. And that was the next step. You're going to bring in another music, musician who's going to upgrade you, musically speaking, and um, sound-wise. And that's, that's basically what happened. And we just got on with the next album, which... Again, you call fragile because everything is so fragile. You don't know if you're going to be here today or tomorrow. There was just so much surrounding yes at that time. It was uh, pretty intense at times. And you just wanted to get on with the next piece of music. And I, oh, okay. You talked earlier, you're 27 years old. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be commercial. Suddenly... Roundup How it becomes like this gigantic Ooh. worldwide hit. I know. And I must say, it doesn't sound like anything else on the radio, and no one would have predicted it would have become that hit, but it becomes a worldwide hit. So what was yeah. your experience? I remember we were in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, rehearsing, and we went for a drive to go have dinner or something like that. And on the way there, Roundabout came on the radio. We'd never heard ourselves on the radio and Hey, it's just, turn it up, turn it up. And then all of a sudden, the middle section of Roundabout wasn't there and it went straight to the organ solo. And I went, wait a minute, they've edited it. <laughs> well, they could have asked, you know, it's like, so <laughs> they got a big pair of scissors and went, take the middle out, 
and it was correct because it worked and it was brilliant and it sounded great. And it was just like all the movies you've ever seen of the band hearing themselves or artists hearing themselves on the radio for the first time. It's, it's freaky, it's wonderful, and you feel like, we've made it at last, we've made it. <laughs> Little did we know, you know. <laughs> okay, it's an unbelievable success. Meanwhile, there's a change in the band, you know, because... We're all hungry for rock press at that point. Rick Wakeman comes out with s seven keyboards. He's wearing a cape. And then he goes on, I'm the only person who eats meat in the band. Yeah. Were you all taking this with a grain of salt? Or was everybody yep. saying, well, you know, he's kind of an attention hog. No, he was Rick Wakeman. Oh, he was sparkly and capes. And, and uh, Andy played so damn good. He was he was quite brilliant, and is brilliant as as he's proved over the years. He's played on so many records that are very well known, and uh, you can't take that away from him. He's brilliant. He's Rick Wakeman. <laughs> okay, so next comes close to the edge. This is really kind of a breakthrough in that there's one song that's a complete side long. Did you feel liberated by your commercial success and said, I'm going to do whatever I want to? How did you approach Close to the Edge? It's very simple. We were on tour with Fragile, and no matter where we went, people played, especially the radio stations in the uh, university cycle. We go to university after university, do a show and go to the radio station and they put on yours no disgrace, you know, never don't think about making it short. <laughs> it's nine, nine minutes long, you know, it's like all of a sudden, wait a minute, FM radio, that's the key. That's the key. The key is radio can play your music now because FM radio accept long form pieces of music and they would play all the heart of the sunrise and all this kind of thing without without a blinking of an eye they actually played it and i started talking to steve because we'd sort of bonded pretty tightly about songwriting ideas and things and we started coming up with an idea um i've been reading um herman hess journey to the east which is a beautiful book of enlightening enlightenment and uh so I just started thinking, yeah, we'll just go, let's just go for it. You know, you do, you can only fit 20 minutes on a record because after 20 minutes it goes wonky, the sound, because it's vinyl, you know. And uh, that was a, a, a trials and tribulations of being in a band where everybody agrees and then doesn't really agree. And then you, you kind of, you go sort of a left and then a, a bit of a right swing and then all of a sudden we'd finished close to the edge and I got a phone call from Bill Bruford. I'm leaving the band. I said, Bill, could you say that again? I'm leaving the band. Why? Well, I've had enough. Okay. What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to join King Crimson. Bill, you bastard. <laughs> I didn't say that. But I just thought, what's wrong with us? 
that really freaked me out. I thought there was something really badly wrong with us. If he was going to leave after creating what I think personally is a wonderful piece of music, why did he leave? What 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 was the what was wrong with me? <laughs> I thought it was me. <laughs> I just thought it was um, you know. Well, fifty years later, what was it? Uh, well, he did. He wasn't getting on with Chris as much as I thought he was. He wasn't. He wasn't enjoying. Uh, you know, Chris would say, "There's the beat," <laughs> and Bill would say, "No, it's there. <laughs> Just to the left, about three inches to the left. No, that's where the beat is." I think they had a couple of j jives like that in their recording, but I didn't take it seriously. I just thought it was just, you know, people not quite um, understanding where the beat is. But um, God bless them, you know. Well, he had, a, yeah. he, he had a peripatetic career and then he ultimately retired. Nobody yeah. retires. I know, I know. I wrote a book. Well, it's life, you know. Uh, he, has had an exceptional life um, when he was out there with his last band. I thought they were ju just so good. Um, can't remember the name, but uh, yeah, very, very good. Because in those days, you know, you'd, you, you, you sort of, um, I remember doing uh, around that time, it was probably around the time of Fragile Tour, uh, we, or maybe, uh, six months or earlier, but we were opening up for the Kinks in, in, uh, in a gig in um, Albany area, University of New York there. And the, the opening band was a band that we hadn't heard about called Mavishnu Orchestra. And uh, we, we were there early to sound check and we knew Mavishnu were going to do a sound check at 6.30 or something. So me and Chris stood there and my jaw just dropped. I went, oh, my God, <laughs> these, these guys have got something. I could not believe what they had. My Vishnu Orchestra was on another planet. And within three months, they were headlining around the world. It was like, oh, wow. So how does Alan White get in the band? Well, that was... That was that big problem that Bill had left, and I was in limbo, and uh, Eddie Offord, our wonderful producer, dude, said, well, I know this guy, Alan White. And I said, Alan White, didn't he play on, uh, Friday, uh, what was it called? Uh, John Lennon album. He said, yeah. Blastagono band. Yeah. So I said, gosh, would he be interested? <laughs> you know, I wasn't quite sure if he, if he would be interested, you know. And he said, yeah, you know, I'll get him to come down this afternoon, rehearsal place we had in Shepherd's Bush. And he came in, joyful guy, sweetest guy in the world. And man, he could play the hell out of the arms. He really, really could do it. And not only that, because we were going on tour in two weeks, he learned the whole tour, the whole show in 10 days. Ridiculous. And he was... My best man at my wedding. Really good man. Stylistically, what was different having Alan in the band as opposed to Bill? You know, I don't know. I don't know that much about. There was there was um, less paradiddles. 
I don't know what to say. He was just so on top of it. He played it magnificent. He, a great, great drummer. There's no question. As Bill was. But Bill was always semi-jazz groove. Da -ba -da 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 -ba -da -chica. Whereas Alan was straight on it, you know, and he, he just learned everything and uh, performed everything quite brilliantly on that tour. And we became fast friends. And I say, he was my best man. So next is Tales from Topographic Oceans. It took Close to the Edge one step further. It's a double album, long song, ultimately controversial. Can you tell us about that? In short, it was, it was, um, very well received by Yes fans. Very, very well received. I, I went through, um, I don't know what it was. It was, uh, when I think about it, I was really scared about what I'd done. And I pushed everybody over the hill, over the hill, pushing them up the mountain. Come on, everybody, we can do this. Come on, what the hell? It's only four pieces of music. What the hell? What the hell? Sort of attitude, you know? And then as I look back over the first year and the, the terrible press that we got and uh, the whole thing, the whole idea, the whole idea of the dream sort of fell apart in my state of consciousness at that time. And I had a rough time when that happened. And, uh, and then, you know, we can leap from that moment uh, because there was something going on that I just felt was wrong. And I don't, I don't quite, I could never pinpoint why things just didn't sail along so beautifully into the sunset. It just did not happen. But a lot of people enjoyed the album. And the, the interesting thing was that um, over, the, over the next year or so, I, 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 I lost a lot of confidence in what I was thinking about music until I seemed, I seemed to get my act together. And then we did um, Going for the One. I had a feeling that that was a very important song. You have to go for it and make it right and make it work. So by the end of the 70s, I had to somehow struggle through a couple of albums and not really knowing where I'm going in the hope that I was going in the right direction. And then we did Awaken. And that for me was um, and is so important to my state of mind because it really um, re rejoined the band and uh, and the angels sang it was it was just uh, a remarkable feeling at the end of that album having gone through a lot of doubt and fear and frustration um, am I doing the right thing? I'm singing. Am I singing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? And and thankfully, at the end of that period, the seventies, uh, it was a it was really a sobering experience for me to wake up and still dream. Now, Rick left, and then he came back. What was going on there? Yeah, that was, well, we, we, we went through the, the experience of making an album, 
with another keyboard player who was very, very talented, very, very strong in his jazz fusion concept, great player. Uh, he just had different uh, Swiss. So he has a different perception of where maybe I was going or I think I thought I was going or I was trying to go. I was, I was just going through a very, um, shall we say, a difficult time. Okay, so you have relayered not so good. You have going for the one, which is a big comeback. Then there's Tormato, which is not as successful. Yeah. And then you leave the band. How do you end up leaving the band? Well, because it is it, it had lost its balance. There was no balance. It was it was it was um, you know a couple of the balance the balance had gone, and I couldn't I couldn't bring it back together. So um, that was the end of that. It was like uh, like when I came and said, "We guys, we got to rehearse. We got to rehearse." Oh, John, just f off, okay? Because that's what they said when I left the band in Germany. F off, very loudly. <laughs> then I said, "Okay, I'm going," and that's what I did. I just let go, you know, let go, let God. You left loudly because you thought you could wake them up. No, I didn't. I didn't wake. I didn't think about it at all. Uh, I just know that uh, we were in Paris trying to make uh, an album, and we brought in the wrong producer, and that was it. And uh, and then oh, it just happened that Alan was out there skating, ice skating or, or roller skating with his girlfriend, and he broke his ankle. That's it. Okay, home we go. And that was the end of that. It was very obviously very disappointing for me because, as I said earlier, I really believed in everybody. And when everything falls apart, you think it's your fault. You have that feeling of, what did I do wrong? Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. How did Roger Dean end up doing all the? He didn't do the first two albums, then he did all of them. How did that come to be? Except for going for the one. Yeah, but he, he was definitely uh, perfect timing to have an artist project the band. You know, I'd say... You know, all the paperwork in the office should be Roger Deanisms, which never happened. But the idea was there. We've actually got an emblem, and, it, and Roger creates it. God bless Roger. Steve Howe knew him, and uh, he came along and he said, What's the name of the album? I said, Fragile. And I just said, Think of porcelain. <laughs> and he said, Okay. And he came back with this lovely, beautiful little world that looked very fragile. It's a great idea. Okay, you leave. You're doing your own thing. How did you feel that the band continued under the yes name with completely different people? I'm not interested. I just I have no interest on. No, any I'm level. talking about at that time because you ultimately come back to the band. Only because it just happened, and I'll tell you this story. Then I got to go, Bob. But here's this: the the this is life. I was down in, in uh, south of France, enjoying the, the wonderful, uh, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And I was working on um, a project that um, will eventually come to fruition. You, you, you tend to start creating stuff after a certain period of your career where you, you, put it to, you finish it and you put it to one side. And then you have another one and you put it to one side. So you finish it with a drawer full of things that you know you're going to do and finish down the line. And I've got a dozen of them sitting in a drawer over there in the studio here that one day I'm going to get on with them and finish them. And uh, that's when you realize, okay, you're, you're, you're a creative dude. Uh, it'll happen when it happens. That became my flagship. You know, it'll happen when it happens. And then I've got to, call from uh, from Steve oh no it was sorry it was Chris and Chris said I hear you're coming to London this weekend I said oh yeah I'm coming to London see the family and everything and I went to London and Chris said I, I, I want to play you something and I said oh really you've you been working with anybody he said oh yeah we've been working with Trevor Horn and I said oh he's the guy that uh, did Duck Rock with um, Malcolm McLaren very very good album He's a very smart guy. What's his name? He says, it's um, Trevor Horn. I said, oh, good. And Trevor Rabin's in, in this ensemble. We're going to be called Cinema. I said, oh, good for you. Anyway, he came by the house and uh, sitting in his Rolls Royce, of course. And I came out to meet him and sat in the Rolls Royce with him. And he started playing me this eight-track of the music that became 90125. And I went, wow, this is so good, Chris. Well done. And it's called Cinema? He said, yeah, oh yeah, we're gonna call it Cinema. Well, 
these are this is a great song, you know, on over a lonely heart chorus song. No, not the song, the verse is not so, but the chorus is a hit, you know. I said, Yeah, we think it's going to be a hit. Then he played a couple of other tracks, and I'm just saying, Man, this is so good. And Chris said, uh, Do you want to sing on it? And I said, What do you mean, sing on it? Yeah, because. Like you say, it needs a de definitely it needs a better verse. So the one of a lonely heart. Maybe you could come in tomorrow to the studio and sing it. I said, Phew. "Well, you know, if I do, it'll sound like yes." <laughs> he said, "Yeah, that's what we want." And I said, "Okay, you got the gig. I got the gig, and I felt so refreshed that uh, I was back in yes." And that's the end of my story, Bob. But it was a good story because that album did great. Horn of a Lonely Heart was a monster hit around the world. We played in front of uh, half a million people in Brazil, which is ridiculously wonderful, along with Rod Stewart and uh, lots of other big stars. But to play in front of half a million people, it's as far as you can see. And uh, the rest is history. Well, you know, as great as uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart is, the rest of the album is unbelievable. You have Hold On and Leave yeah, It. Yeah. Everyone a winner. And okay. I, write, I, I, got, I got to walk in and start singing it and writing lyrics a bit here and there. It's kind of change the lyrics. Yeah, of course, John. Do what you want. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. And that's, then all of a sudden, I was, I was six foot tall from then on. Okay. The music <laughs> was totally done at that point? Yeah. And were there any lyrics? There, there was, there was uh, in Honor of a Lonely Heart, there was a song which, which, which was sitting in the track rather than sitting on top of the track. So I just said to Trevor Aben, I said, look, why don't we just go, because that's what the band was. And he said, oh, that's good. Just write that down. Uh, lose yourself. You always live your life. And he said, never thinking of the future. Oh, yeah, never thinking of the future. So, oh, John, get on with it. So I just got on with it, you know. And then the next one was another song, Hearts, another song. You, you start opening up and saying, yeah, well, this works beautifully. I'm happy to sing that. And Trevor Horn was very good. And everybody was so nice and happy. Did you have any idea it was going to be as successful as it was? I just felt that Owner was a hit. It depends if, uh, of course, at that point in time, we had to make a video standing on top of a skyscraper in London and MTV started. So everything changed in a way. So from that moment, I just felt, oh, I'm on top of the world. Thank you very much, God. I really be a better boy next time. Okay. There was an amazing tour. Okay. And... That's the first tour I've ever seen where the lighting rig descended to the stage at one point, you know, yeah, certain yeah. arms. Yeah. Was that something you were involved in or yeah. somebody? Well, originally it was the idea that I wanted to use, I'd seen Vangelis, which is another story of my life, was uh, I'd seen a photograph of him in Paris with laser beams and they'd never been used ever. And he was the first guy to use them as a show. And I kept saying to the guys, we've got to get some laser beams, got to get some laser beams. And that's when these all the, all the staging and design 
because I was that kind of guy who always said, look, there's a lot of people way over there when you're playing in front of 10,000 people, a lot of people are way over there and they, they can just about see me, I'm two inches high. They should see a big spectacle of light and color. And that's another, that's another um, interview, Bob. And then how do you meet Van Gillis? That's another interview, Bob. Okay, then I'll ask you just a couple of questions and I'll let you go. Tell me about <laughs> writing State of Independence. Oh my God. I just, as life would have it, I was told not to go near the band by Trevor Horn, bless him, when they're rehearsing new songs. So I was, uh, okay, then I'll just uh, twiddle my thumbs for a month or two, which I did, and started writing some song ideas that I had. And Vangelis was in Paris. So I went to Paris for a while, and then I went to see, uh, yes, in this um, Gothic castle. And uh, they'd been there a couple of months, and not much had happened. A lot of just wasn't happening on, on different levels. And then I was there. I came up with some ideas for the next ideas, da, 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 da. And the following day, Trevor Horn said, I think the guys would rather you don't be here anymore. Don't be here. <laughs> F off. <laughs> so I said, okay. And I went to, to, to Paris and uh, uh, went to the studio where Van Gallis was. And I'm walking in and he's doing this sound. And I said, is the microphone on? He said, yeah, it's on. So I went over and started singing, trying to think of the song now. State of life, may I live, may I love. Coming out the sky, I name me a name. Coming up silver word for what it is. It is the very nature of the sound, the game. And I went all the way through the song, lyric and everything. Just came out of you just like that off the top of your just head. Just like that. And it blew my mind. Okay. There was a little bit of adoption of that song by the landscape, but ultimately on her first Geffen album with uh, Quincy Jones, Donna Summer does Donna a cover. Donna yeah. Which is a good version, but I actually prefer the version by Mood Food on the Mood Swings out Mood Swings Mood Food wow. with uh with Chrissy Hine. It's just oh, unbelievable. Yeah. She's great. She's great. But you know, Donna was br brilliant. And did you notice who sang on that song? Remind me, I own the album, I can't remember. Here they go. I gotta remember. Michael Jackson, Diana Ross. Stevie Wonder. Who's the guy in America's Got Talent? Uh, on the ceiling, was it? Dancing on the ceiling. Anyway, a dozen of the top singers ever sang on that song, and I feel blessed that I saw the photograph. <laughs> and but if you, yeah, if you just Google jo uh, Michael Jackson's State of Independence, yeah, I'm, see, I'm seeing if I can uh, find it right now. They're all there. Did you know that, uh, oh yeah, 
Lionel Richie. <laughs> Lionel Richie, that was it, sorry. Dion Warwick, Diana Ross, Brenda Russell, Christopher Cross, Diane yeah. Cannon, James Ingram, Kenny Loggins, Penny Lipton, yeah. Patty Austin, All the greats. Michael McDonald, and Stevie Wonder. All the great sang on the song that I wrote. I'm so blessed. Thank you very much, God. <laughs> and then it also says here on Wikipedia, Summer's version is one of Brian Edo's favorite songs. Excellent. Is- well done, Brian. Okay, so did you know that they were covering it, or just one day you got the record? No, it's funny that um, our good friend, Lee Abrams, sent Quincy the album before Thriller. Because if you, if, you, if you read that album, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a carbon copy of, and Quincy always says it, yes, John, we just, okay, we stole it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they use voiceovers, because we, you know, in Friends of Mr. Cairo, there was voiceovers of Peter Laurie and all the greats, and then that's what they used in uh, Thriller. Of course, everybody, everybody is part of everything. You know, it's, it's just the way of the world. And okay, so as you hold move- on, hold on. That was it. That's the end of my story, Bob. Okay, I got one more question, and then we're going to go. So, you know, you leave Yes, you work with members of Yes. At this point in your life, to what degree is it frustrating that you have to play the old music live as opposed to the new music? Bob, you've said the perfect question. I just came off tour with the Bang Geeks. These Bang Geeks... Are these five, six, sorry, great. One, two, three, one, two, three, six, six players, five players, <laughs> two keyboard players, drummer, bass, guitarist, unbelievable people, unbelievable musicians. Somebody sent me um, a rendition of Heart of the Sunrise again with them playing it. And I just went crazy and said, I got to work with these guys. I've got to go on tour with these guys and play all the music from the 70s because that's the great music of Yes. And that's what we just did. And do you feel frustrated that you can't go live and play your new music to a large audience? No. Eventually, whatever I'm doing now will evolve into what it's going to be. And I have great uh, feelings and dreams like any normal guy and that these things will come to pass and people will hear my latest work and uh, I have great dreams about it as well where it's going to be played and so on and so on okay so as you and myself are in the sunset of our years and you're a deep thinker metaphysical guy so what ultimately happens to us at the end of our lives well we go to the next level the next level of consciousness it's very been well written throughout the ages is that we keep forgetting that we go to the next level of consciousness. That's all there is to it. Take it or leave it, buddy. Okay. I think we're going to leave it there, John. I want to thank you for taking all the time. Tell us so much about yourself and your career. Thank you, Bob. In any event, till next time, this is Bob Left Sets.
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. 